Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Welcome to Monday Nights at OCC. We're glad you're here. We're going to live stream tonight, which we don't often do on Monday nights, but the live stream blew up yesterday, so folks will be watching along with you throughout the week. So we're glad you're here. We're glad folks are joining us online, and we are going to study, as we always do, so if you have your Bible, grab that. Join me in Luke chapter 17. We're going to work through a big chunk of scripture tonight, but I want to start with this. I got married not recently, 25 years ago, 1996, to a beautiful young lady named Christina Phillips. And I began pursuing her. Some might use another word, stalking, maybe, potato, potato. I I call it pursuing. I began pursuing her in the summer of 1994. She would not date me. I was not a Christ follower at the time, and so she would not date me. But we were good friends, right? We hung out quite a bit that year. By the next year, By 1995, we were dating very seriously in that fall, and as a matter of fact, we got engaged that Christmas, and we became husband and wife. But 1994 was the first year I met her. That was a sad year for me personally as a baseball fan, huge baseball fan, because that was the year of the Major League Baseball strike, if you remember that. So after early August, no more baseball, no playoffs in the fall, no World Series, which I know doesn't affect the Mariners, but 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 affects every other team in Major League Baseball, right? Next year is the year for my Mariners. But, but I was pursuing Christina in 1994. By 1995, we were dating. And so my very observant soon-to-be bride was at my house one night. She was doing some homework. She was still in grad school. I was watching baseball, right? And I remember she turned to me and she said, you know, I don't remember you watching near this much baseball last fall. And I said to her, I was like, well, you know, that's, that's because there was a player strike last year and there was no World Series. And she said to me, without missing a beat, does that happen often? (laughs) Not since 1904, baby. (laughs) But, But that's the thing. She didn't know a lot about baseball at the time, right? She was aware the game existed, but she just wasn't a big fan. If I would ask her today to name some of the starting pitchers for the Mariners, she can do it. She can pronounce Yusei Kikuchi. She's become like a baseball fan, right? Because of my passion for it because our youngest boy loves to play the game. And so she didn't realize she had a lot of room for growth in that area of baseball knowledge until she wanted to gain some baseball knowledge. I tell you all that because I think it does tie in to the passage we're going to study in today. Luke 17, if you have your Bibles, verses 20 to 37. Now in this text, Jesus starts out talking to the Pharisees about his first coming And then he winds up talking to his disciples about his second coming, how he's going to return to the earth. Now, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of different thoughts about the right way to play baseball. Back in the day, everybody used to think you played small ball, right? You bunt for base hits, you sacrifice runners over, you steal bases, you try to score runs that way. And nowadays, people seem to play by a lot different philosophy here, trying to get nine guys you can mash and just everybody tries to hit home run or strikes out trying. I don't think it's as exciting sometimes, but, but there are different philosophies, right? Well, there are differing views about the second coming of Jesus Christ in the same way. Now, all sound theologians realize this one truth, Jesus is coming back. They have different views about the timing of that event. And there are really 
three major views. This actually does end up being a little more of a preview for Christmas because this is what we talk about every December, right? Once we get into the Advent season, we talk about Christ's first coming. He came as a little baby in the manger, but then we talk about the fact that he is coming back. He's going to come again, but that can be confusing. There's some elements of that that are a little tricky because we try to determine the timing of the rapture when that historical event is going to take place. And there's some people who believe that the rapture of the church, which is a time where Jesus is going to come in the clouds to snatch away all true Christ followers to be with him, they think that is maybe the same thing as the second coming of Christ. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Those are two different events. So before we dive into this passage today about the second coming, let's tackle the rapture of the church just for a second, okay? Now, for some folks, this will be a review, and that's fine. I hope it's a good refresher. But for some folks, this might be the first time we've talked about this. But the rapture of the church refers to a future event where all Christ followers, everybody who has professed faith in Jesus up to that point in time, whether they're alive or not so alive at that time anymore, we're all going to be gathered together to be with Jesus, and we're going to be taken out of this world. Now, one of the tricky things about the rapture is Jesus didn't go into great detail about this on the first coming while he was hanging out here on the planet. He didn't specifically say anything about it. Now, I think the reason for that is because his disciples didn't even get the second coming, right? If he tried to drop some more knowledge on them, I think their heads would have exploded. But Jesus did, through the Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit inspired, share more about the rapture later on in God's Word. And we read this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul encountered a lot of hostility when he was sharing the gospel there in Thessalonica. But man, he loved those folks. He planted a church there. And so his heart was with them. He wanted to send somebody back to check on him. So he sent his disciple, Timothy. And Timothy went back to Thessalonica and he said, man, the believers are doing great, but they've got some pretty legitimate questions about what's going to happen to their loved ones who had already passed away. And that's where Paul wrote in about three chapters to try and explain the rapture. And we can read this on our own this week when we study it. First Thessalonians chapters 3, four and five. But Paul explained when Jesus returns for the rapture, he's not going to come all the way down to the earth like he will at the second coming where he puts his feet on the ground. This time he's going to appear in the clouds. And when that happens, the people who have already passed away, they're going to rise first and they're going to join Jesus in the clouds. And then this is going to be wild. They're going to be followed by all the believers who are alive at that time. We will all become like Elijah and Enoch, the Old Testament guys who went to heaven without dying. We're going to be like that. It's amazing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 tells us. It says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Who are them? The dead folks who rose. We're going to be in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now that little phrase, caught up together, that explains the notion we're going to be raptured together. Now, very selfishly, I wish it said in the Bible, we will be raptured together because that would make this all a lot easier to understand. But, but this is the concept. Jesus is going to come almost all the way back to the planet and take his people to be with him. That's the rapture of the church. Then if we keep reading into chapter 5 there in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us a little more detail. He says that event is going to happen just before the tribulation. Now, this is not the everyday tribulation that we go through, the trials and the struggles in this world. This is that specific seven-year period of intense persecution that the Bible teaches us about. 
We read a lot about this in Daniel. We read about it in Revelation. But at this time, after the rapture, there's going to be a day of the Lord, a time of judgment that will cover the whole world. Now, we're trying to paint big picture here of things that are going on, and a lot of people have a lot of different views about the timing of these events. But one thing is for certain, and Johnny mentioned this earlier during our worship set, in the world we live in right now, which seems just crazy and out of this, we can't understand all the things, we are thinking about this a whole lot. Because we're thinking, gosh, is this it? Is this the beginning of the end of the world as we know it? Well, to find answers to that, we need to study God's word. And if you've been here as long as I've been here, ever since I've been here at OCC, we study in a particular way for a reason. We study where we make observations in God's word. We just read the text to see what's going on there. And with those observations, then we correlate that with the rest of Scripture. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. If it says something here, we say, does this fit across the board? So we make the observations, we make the correlations, and then when we do that, we can arrive at the correct interpretation. And the interpretation of a passage is, what did that mean to the people it was written to? At the time and place it was written. That's the correct interpretation. It's not about how we feel about it today. It's about what it meant to those people. But once we go through those steps, observation and correlation and interpretation, then we get to what is clearly the most important part. It's the application. Now that we know what it means, how do we apply it in our lives? And the timing of the rapture is of particular interest for all Christ followers Because depending upon which theological view we arrive at, that determines how much of that great tribulation we're going to have to endure. So like I said, there are three major theological views that explain when Jesus is going to come for this second coming. The first view is called the amillennial view. I don't agree with this view, but it teaches that Christ's kingdom is happening right now. It's being fulfilled. His spiritual reign over people in this age is what we're going to get. And if that's the position someone takes, then they believe that the promises God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about possessing a land in Canaan and having descendants that rule over the nations, those are being spiritually fulfilled right now in Christ. Again, that's not a position I see in Scripture. I don't believe if we interpret the Bible literally, we'll get to that spot. I know there are theologians who do support that idea, but it just seems to me if this is the best we're going to get, Christ's rule over this wicked and corrupt world right now, that's a long way off from the glorious picture of the kingdom that God promises in Scripture. I for sure know Christ is in charge right now. I believe this is the initial phase of his kingdom, but I believe there's so much more to come. I believe Scripture teaches us one day Jesus is literally going to reign over the nations on the throne of David in the place where he first showed up, in Israel. He's going to rule there in power and glory. So if we don't follow that amillennial view, that leaves two other views to explain the second coming. The second suggestion is called the post-millennial view. It says Christ is going to come, and gradually the gospel is going to spread over the whole earth and triumph over evil, and this world will be kind of perfect. And, And that's not a position I hold either. I think the passage we're going to look at today refutes that pretty hard because we're going to read about a world that is not fully converted. There's a bunch of folks on this planet just going about their own business, kind of being self-centered as usual, and that's exactly what it's going to look like when Christ returns. That leaves us with only one more view, and this is the one I believe is correct from Scripture. It's called the pre-millennial view. 
And all these have that word millennial in there, and that's a concept we get from the Bible. We'll see that in a minute. But this premillennial view says that Jesus is going to return in power and in glory to judge this wicked world that we're in. And then he's going to establish his kingdom for that millennial period, for a thousand years. We can read about this in Revelation. And this premillennial view is the one that makes the most sense to me from a literal interpretation of Scripture. So timing-wise, I believe before the second coming of Christ, before the worst tribulation we can imagine occurs on this planet, Christ followers are going to be out of here. We're going to be snatched away to be raptured to be with Jesus. And we can see this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. John writes this letter to the church that was meeting in Philadelphia. So it's two believers. And he says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. It's coming to test those who dwell on the earth. He's saying God is going to keep his followers from this great tribulation. We kind of see that same promise from God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul shares, and we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That's Jesus in case we're not following along. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. Again, I believe in context that's talking about saving us from this great tribulation. But again, I, I, I will readily admit, man, I wish this was a whole lot clearer. I wish at the end of Revelation 3, John wrote, and now the rapture happens, because we'd be like, see, right there it is. But it's not that clear. Now, we can look at the book of Revelation and see that the church was the audience for the first three chapters. John's writing to the church, and then for the next 17 chapters, the church is conspicuously gone until Revelation 20. And we can grasp that, but it doesn't say, goodness, the, the rapture happens right now. And so that's why we end up with all these differing views of the timing of these events. And sometimes it seems like so much, we just kind of throw our hands up and go, I don't think I can understand it. Yes, it's complex, but man, there are incredible things to learn here when we study. And again, all these differing views about the timing of the second coming, they do share one very common, very important truth, that Jesus is coming. <laughs> He's coming back. So the takeaway, the application is the more important part. We need to be ready. We need to be ready for that event no matter when it happens. Now, for folks who are confused about this, who have never thought about it, again, as I said earlier, I was talking to some folks in the last couple weeks who thought the rapture and the second coming were the same event. I don't believe the Bible supports that idea. There's a great passage in Matthew 25 that we can use to correlate, and a lot of you might be familiar with that passage and not even know or remember where it is, but I can say three words and you'll remember this passage, sheeps and goats, right? <laughs> we know that passage. It's Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, and it's talking about assembling all of the Gentile believers on the earth at that time. And the text says the people who are sheep are believers and the people who are unbelievers are goats. Well, if we thought the rapture occurred at the same time as the second coming of Christ, then logically there would be no sheep in that story, right? Because all the sheep would be gone. They would have been raptured away. So that's why we correlate the Bible. It helps us understand these big picture concepts. So tons of background before we start here. But now we know we're talking about two different events, right? The rapture of the church, which is there to spare Christ followers from the great tribulation. But then there will be a time of judgment for those left on the earth. So sometime in that period between the rapture and the second coming, there are going to be folks here who will profess faith in Christ. 
So that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. When the second coming occurs, what's going to happen? Well, we know from the Bible, Jesus is going to show up. And man, this is a great read. If you want to read this on your own this week, starting in Revelation 19, he shows up. He is ready for war. The nations will be gathered to fight in this huge battle. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is not about a meteor that's going to destroy the earth and they drill into it and blow it up. That's not it. It's named Armageddon because of the place where it's going to happen. It's in a place called Megiddo. And man, that's going to be a wild day. Read that text. Mountains will move. There'll be no sunlight and darkness on that day. On that day, God's enemies will be defeated. That's the day the Antichrist, that's the day the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. That's the day that God wins. That's the day that Jesus establishes his kingdom here on this earth. And immediately after that, Jesus is going to inaugurate this judgment for those people who are still alive after the tribulation, those people who are on earth at the time of the second coming. It's often referred to as the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And for those sheep, for those believers in Christ, they're going to remain on this planet for a millennium, for a period of a thousand years. We read about this in Revelation 20. This is after the church being absent for so long. Now they reappear. And this is going to be an amazing time. Peace, prosperity, like you can't imagine. Why? Because Satan is gone. For a thousand years, he's going to be in the lake of fire. So great time to be sheep. Not such a good time to be a goat. At that point in time, unbelievers are separated from God forever. So bad news for them. But for those people who are alive at the time and had a relationship with Jesus, have already passed away in this period after the rapture, those saints are going to be resurrected as well. That's going to be wild. They're going to join this thousand-year party here on earth. Are you tracking along so far? Because this is pretty incredible stuff, and it's not the end of the story. I wish it was, because the further you go, a little more confusing it gets. But just logically, during that thousand-year period, there's going to be a lot of people born who will not have had to put up with the same stuff we put up with today. Why? Because Satan's in the lake of fire. So there won't be that temptation. There won't be Satan flicking at your ear all the time. So after a thousand years, Satan is going to be released again for a short period of time. When I first read about that, I hated that part. <laughs> I was like, what is going on, right? But, but after that, there's going to be one final battle, which Jesus will win easily. And from that point on, then Satan is permanently placed in that lake of fire. So at that point, after that thousand-year period, after that second battle, there's going to be one final judgment. This one has a great name that we've seen from Scripture, from Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. And that, then, is the end. That's the whole story. And I think it's a little like baseball. <laughs> because for me, everything is a little like baseball. <laughs> but here's the way that I think they're similar. If we don't know any baseball rules, watching a baseball game gets really tricky for us, right? Just by a show of hands, how many of you in here know what the infield fly rule is? If you know what the infield fly rule is, that helps you when you're watching baseball. Because otherwise, if that situation comes up, you have no idea what just happened. <laughs> Runners on first and second or the bases loaded less than two outs. Batter hits a pop-up on the infield that the infielder can catch without making supreme effort. The umpire will immediately call the batter out. You'd be like, well, nobody's even caught the ball yet. What's going on? <laughs> And heaven forbid, if they don't catch the ball and the runners advance, then the whole game gets crazy. But, but there's a reason for that. That is written into the baseball rules because if that wasn't there, 
then the fielders would get crazy and try and do weird stuff and let balls drop on purpose to try and turn double plays and triple plays, and it would just be utter chaos. So the folks who made the baseball rules inserted that rule to make the game easier to follow. But if we don't know the rules, man, we can really get tripped up on that. Well, I I think our theology of the end times is kind of like that. If we don't know everything there is to know, if we don't study what God's word says, we don't understand all the nuance. I told you the first time I found out about Satan getting back out after being in the lake of fire, man, that just really bothered me. But then I thought, well, that makes sense. Because at the end of that thousand-year reign, all those folks would have never had to deal with Satan the way we do now. God didn't create us to be robots and just always have to choose him. We have to make some choices. And so it makes sense, even though I don't like it. So the bottom line, the absolute bottom line, what happens at the second coming? God wins. That's the thing to focus on. Evil is defeated. And we're going to jump into this tonight because our text is going to take us there. But I think this is just super timely because the world we live in, the time we live in today, because you hear more and more and more people, and I'm praying it almost all the time, Jesus, come back today. Jesus, we could really use you. This world is crazy. How many folks are praying that? And I want us to realize that desire for Jesus to come back, that's not a new occurrence. Folks have been praying that for a long time. I remember the first time I really started hearing about this, and I wasn't even a Christ follower. Uh, 1991, I graduated college. I'm that old. But back when I lived in Missouri, I went to Southeast Missouri State, and there was this huge prediction there was going to be a major earthquake along the New Madrid fault line, which is right by where I lived. I mean, it was going to be so major, it was going to basically swallow up the entire Midwest of the United States. It was a game changer, right? And so lots of people, I wasn't a praying person, but lots of people were praying, oh, Lord, come back before this earthquake destroys us all. The earthquake never happened, by the way. And then it wasn't much longer after that, 1999 rolled around, and dear goodness, we know then the Y2K, right? The world was going to end because computers can't carry one or something like that. I don't know what the, but, but everybody was praying, oh goodness, the world's going to come to an end. Jesus is going to come back. And we know how that one turned out, right? We've been praying about this for a long time. And I remember during the Y2K thing, there was this group that formed and they got press and news time, but it blew my mind. They were a group of doomsday preppers called the Society for Secular Armageddonism. You can imagine t-shirts they'd have, that would be great, right? But they said, yeah, the world's coming to an end because all these weird things, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, the AIDS epidemic, the population explosion. That was 21 years ago. That was before climate change and COVID, right? And folks praying for Jesus to come back just like we are now. But let's be honest, we do not know if this is the end of the world, but we do know it's coming, We know this world is just temporary for us, right, before we move on to eternity. If we read God's word, he talked a lot about the coming of his kingdom. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. And so there's two parts. First, in verses 20 to 21, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. They're asking about when the kingdom of God is coming, and they're really talking about the first kingdom of God. They totally missed Jesus. But in the second part of our passage, which is the rest of what we're looking at, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he's talking about the second coming. And again, there's many, many mentions of Christ's second coming in Scripture. And so I don't think the takeaway is for us to argue about the timing and try and say one person's right or one person's wrong. I think the takeaway is to figure out how to live in this world right now 
in light of what is coming. Talking scripture about the second coming, it's supposed to help us be the best Christ followers we can be right here and now. And I think much more specifically help us realize we don't want to be goats. We need to make sure we are in God's kingdom so we can avoid that judgment, avoid that wrath that he talked about. So that's the longest introduction I've ever had to a sermon, but let's dive in to this passage. We'll have this on the Sky Bible if you need it. Here's how Luke records Jesus' words, starting in verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered these guys. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, we can't be sure if the Pharisees are questioning Jesus with a hostile tone or not, because you can't tell that from writing, right? That's why you got to be so careful about texts and emails you send. You just don't know. But what we know about the Pharisees, I think it's pretty safe to say they were at least skeptical about this whole kingdom of God thing. Because the general Jewish belief was that the kingdom of God was going to come with a huge bang, with a lot of fanfare. There's going to be a powerful Messiah that came and established his rule in Israel, came and delivered the nation from their enemies. Instead, what'd they get? You know, a, a ragtag carpenter with a bunch of lowly fishermen following him around. No sign that he's going to defeat Rome. No sign he's going to usher in this glorious new age. Now, yes, there were some miracles. That probably threw some folks. But, but they're asking, where are the visible signs of this kingdom rule? And I love Christ's response in verse 21. He says, the kingdom is in your midst. So it's clear that he's talking about the first coming of God. He's saying, little seven-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus became, hey, me, look, I'm here. I'm standing right here in front of you. And this is one of the reasons why I prefer the NASB translation. The ESV translates this as well. You might be reading a translation that doesn't include this. It says, the kingdom is within you. And I I don't know if that's the best translation, because that would really be a stretch to guarantee that all these Pharisees were genuine Christ followers. That's who's going to have Christ in us, right? After the day of Pentecost, we get Jesus living inside us. I don't think these guys were that way. So so this is a better deal for Jesus to say, I'm right here with you. I'm in your midst. And you guys are missing it. Why? Because they were waiting for that big entrance. They wanted some visible sign, but they didn't get a lot of fanfare. Baby in a manger, lowly carpenter. The Pharisees were hoping for so much more, someone to wipe out their enemies. But in this next section, Jesus turns his attention from the Pharisees' question now to the questions that he knows his guys are going to have about the second coming. He knows his disciples are clueless about so many things. And so he's going to try and clear up some of the things that we tried to clear up here in our introduction about how differing views of the second coming can really confuse us a little bit. This is how he begins in verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. He says, you will not see it. Doesn't that remind us of today? We're longing to see Christ return. We're earnestly praying for it. It seems like God's not on our timetable, right? We're wondering if God's taking a nap or something. But, but this is one of the lessons we need to learn. We need to endure with patience these situations, these trials that God allows for our own good because we're supposed to grow. And that's the problem, isn't it? The trials are always difficult. They're super hard. 
was doing a lot of research on the internet this week, and I came across this quote, and I thought this was really good. It resonated with me. I want to see if it resonates with you. This is from Harper's Magazine, October 10th. It said, it is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. Not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The domestic economic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron seethes and bubbles with uncertainty. Russia hangs as usual like a cloud, dark and silent upon the horizon. It is a solemn moment. Of our troubles, no man can see the end. I took that quote from Harper's Magazine, October 10th, 1847. 174 years ago. I think we've been throwing up our hands a lot saying, Jesus, come back. Because we know that only Jesus can rescue us from this mess. We look at the personal problems we're having. We look at our financial struggles, our health issues, all these things, and we cry out, hey, when are you coming back, Jesus? We need you right now. How much longer can we take? And that's going to be so amazing when he does come to rapture believers. I can't wait for that day, but I got to wait. Because <laughs> I'm supposed to be patiently enduring all this mess. Trusting in the hope that Christ will return soon. But that's not easy. Of course, that's why developing endurance is a real blessing. Now, during this time that we're supposed to be waiting, we're also supposed to be, supposed to be discerning. That's what we see in verse 23. They'll say to you, look there, look here. Jesus says, do not go away. Do not run after them. So here's the truth, church. While we're sitting here in this fallen world, enduring and waiting, false prophets, false Christs are going to rise up and they're going to tempt us to follow them. Hey, hey, I got the answer over here. Hey, I got the solution. I got, I got the promise. And Jesus says, don't fall for it. Be discerning. As people, I think we're really prone to this temptation, right? Something doesn't work out the way we want it to. Something isn't fixed in the way we're hoping to or certainly on our timetable. And isn't that what we say? Jesus, where are you? And that's when we'll oftentimes run after a quick fix. This is the golden calf problem for us over and over and over again. It's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be enduring. We're supposed to be discerning. And then from the rest of the passage, we get... Our final warning, and this one is so important, be ready. Be ready. This is how Jesus explains it, starting in verse 24. He says, if you're just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. When Jesus returns, it's noticeable, right? First, he must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same thing as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on his housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. 
Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? She turned back. It says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, there's going to be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There'll be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Answering, the disciples said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, again, this can be a little confusing because this sounds a little like the rapture. This is some of the terminology we use, taken and left behind and things like that. But, but it's not the rapture. He's talking about the second coming. And we know that because the rapture is that picture of protection, of taking the church from the earth. The second coming is this picture of judgment. And with Noah and with Lot, these people experienced judgment. It happened here on the earth. Their lives were taken, those people who died, Right? That's the thing that we understand. Those who were left in those examples were actually safe. Noah was safe. Lot was safe. So this is not the rapture. But Jesus emphasizes the suddenness of his second coming. And he reminds the disciples, it's going to happen after I'm rejected by this current generation. But when I come back, it's going to be noticeable. Everyone's going to see it. The problem is, at that point in time, it's too late to switch teams. That's why we're supposed to be ready. That's why we have to make sure we're on Team Jesus right now before these events take place. But to underscore how critical it is that we're ready, Jesus starts name dropping. He gives these examples from history. Talks about Noah, talks about Lot. Well, the people in Noah's day, and then later on the people in Lot's day, they were desperately wicked people, many of them, but they were just going about their day-to-day activities, not thinking at all about the fact that judgment was to come. Now, don't make this stretch for me. We can't go to this spot and say, well, gosh, there must be things wrong with eating or drinking or getting married or buying or selling. No, that's not the point. The point is if we're going about our everyday lives without any regard for the fact that God gave us these lives, he's the one who's in charge. If we act like judgment's never going to come, then we're not doing it right. And that's why Jesus describes what things are going to look like when he comes back. And again, I mentioned earlier, interpretation is understanding what it meant to the folks it was written to at that time and place. And so that housetop reference seems weird for us. Why is somebody up on their house? We got to remember the houses back in Palestine all had flat roofs and people went up there like we go to on our deck, right? So that's the same thing. They're saying when you're on your deck, you can't run down into the house when judgment comes. When you're out in the field, you can't run home and pack a bag. Well, why is that important? Because the things of this earth don't matter. What are we going to go back and get that we would need in heaven? All this stuff's unimportant there. And that's what that instruction means. Whoever wants to keep the life we have here on earth, we're going to lose that life. But if we recognize all this stuff is temporary, then we realize how eternal, how wonderful life in heaven with God is. And so Jesus keeps loading this account with examples of what that's going to be like. Two folks sleeping side by side, working side by side. One is going to be rescued for eternity with God, but the other is going to be ushered into judgment. They're ushered into that, and we get that graphic description about the vultures in verse 37. It says, those people who don't know Jesus, their lives are going to be taken. Their bodies will be prey for the vultures. That's a pretty graphic picture of judgment. But here's the thing about all these examples, about the entirety of the passage. 
I think God enjoys it when we have healthy dialogue about all these differing theological views. As long as we don't get so caught up in that discussion that we miss the takeaway. When Jesus comes back, when he comes all the way to this earth, all humanity is going to be divided into those two groups. Those who have lived for themselves, they have no regard for God. And it's amazing to me to think that's what's going to happen. I don't understand how those people are going to have a leg to stand on after having seen the rapture. But of course, there were people who here when the first coming, Jesus was doing miracles and they denied Christ then. So I shouldn't be that surprised, I guess, but I, I still am. People will discount the rapture of the church and they'll still deny God. And those people are going to fall under judgment. Those people are going to wind up as carcasses for the vultures. That's one group. But the other group, those who belong to God through Jesus, we get to escape his judgment. That's the whole picture from verses 24 to 37. That coming is going to be sudden, so we need to be prepared. You ever have something you have to get prepared for? <laughs> There's a timeliness aspect to it, right? We don't live down in the South, Texas or Florida or places like that. They get hurricanes, right? It's hurricane season. And when the hurricane's coming, they tell you, go out and get your stuff and go out and board up the windows. You got to do that before the hurricane comes, right? We get it in the Northwest, we get blizzards, we get snowstorms, right? So you got to run out and get milk and eggs and bread because apparently the only thing you eat during a blizzard is French toast, I guess. I don't understand that. But, but you, you run out to get that stuff. Why? Because when the blizzard comes, then you don't have time to go out and get it. Well, that's what this is saying. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it's going to be too late for you to get right with him. So do it now. Do it today. <laughs> Profess faith in Christ, and then we can live in certainty during these uncertain times. And that is a blessing. So if you're here tonight, and this is the first time you're ever hearing this message, you're watching online, and this is the first time you've heard this, talk to somebody. Talk to the person who invited you to church tonight. Talk to someone in your home who knows Jesus, and let them help you realize that God is calling you into an eternal relationship with him that begins the moment you profess faith. Make that profession of faith. And you can have all kinds of discussion about the timing of the events. You'll know you're safe. Let me close with this. During his 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy closed a lot of his speeches by telling a story about a guy named Colonel Davenport. Colonel Davenport was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives way back in the year 1780. On May 19th of that year, 1780, the skies in Hartford, Connecticut got really dark, ominously dark. And so some of the representatives were glancing out the window and they thought for sure it was the end of the world, right? They thought it was coming. People were looking back then, just like we're looking today. And so some of the folks in the Connecticut House of Representatives made a motion for an immediate adjournment of the meeting. That's how sure they were the world was coming to an end. And that's when Colonel Davenport rose and he said this. And Kennedy always quoted him. He says, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it's not, there's no cause for adjournment. He says, but if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought into this dark room. See, that's the deal. Rather than getting all freaked out, and fearful about the rapture of the church or when the second coming is going to come, what it's going to be like, truly, we're just supposed to be faithful day in and day out. We're supposed to be doing our duty. The outline says tonight, we're supposed to be enduring. We're supposed to be discerning. And most of all, we're supposed to be ready for Christ's return. 
And if we're those three things, then instead of fearing the dark, what are we? We're the candles that are brought into that dark room. We can be shining Christ's light in this fallen world. That's the takeaway. Think we can do that? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Daddy, help us to be that light. Help us to be found doing our duty. These are neat things, fun theological things to discuss about the timing of the rapture, the timing of your second coming. But God, the reality is for each and every one of us who profess faith in Christ, we're going to be found to be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And God, we won't have to be worried about that judgment. So God, help us. If there's folks here tonight who, who have not responded in faith, God, help them to answer that call and place their faith in you. God, help us to learn and grow in our study. Help us to understand the rules of the game. But God, more than anything, help us to grow and deepen our relationship with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.